Welcome to the Kingdom Roots Podcast with Scott McKnight, a conversation designed to look at how the kingdom took root then and how it's taking root now. I'm your host, Chaz Robbins, and today on our episode, we're talking about preaching and how it's proclaiming the kingdom. Scott, the Greek word that gets translated in the New Testament for preach is keruso, and the word, the other important word, gospel is euangelion. These are important words when it comes to understanding preaching, and I guess a good place to start would be, is there any helpful historical context that we need to understand about these words to understand what preaching in the church really is all about? Yeah, I mean, preaching uh, takes on different characteristics in churches because it is uh, connected to the church, to several ministries in the church. Uh, Sunday morning service as a worship time uh, leans preaching toward uh, in the direction of teaching at what we would call catechesis or instruction. The Greek word would be uh, didasko or didike. Uh, But that's the focus on, you know, when it's when it's God's people who are believers gathered together. Uh, There's another side to preaching on Sunday morning, where it starts to move in the direction of the meaning of the word keruso or evangelion in the early church and in the Jewish world and in the Roman world. And that's when the word starts taking on the meaning of declare. And my colleague at Northern, um, two of them, uh, David Fitch and Jeff Holsclaw as uh, Bivocational pastors have sort of a strategy that at the beginning of the sermon, they announce the message that they are proclaiming in the sermon. And that is very, very close to how the word keruso, or especially the word evangelion, is used in the Roman world. It means to announce something, to declare something, to declare that Jesus Christ is Lord that Jesus Christ, who was crucified and who died, has been raised and is now ascended to the Father and to his right hand. These are declarations. And when we equate preaching with cool, rational, informed, well-intended teaching, simply explaining things in a very calm way, uh, we're doing something vital for the church, but we are not technically preaching. We are teaching. Yeah, and, you know, and I love that the foundation of of preaching in what it meant originally was a declaration. I know I, I'd be curious if this were true. I know when I've heard it explained, it being like a, a battle term that there would be a messenger who would take a declaration back to the people he was reporting to, and he would have a, a message that that he would proclaim. Um, if the ba- if the battle was going their way, it would be a good news message. It would be a declaration. Uh, is that something that holds up as historically um, true and, and yes. reliable? Yeah, the, the word... Uh, 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 was often uh, the declaration of a messenger. And so depending on what the messenger had to deliver, you know, sometimes it was the news of the progress of a war. Sometimes it was the news of the completion of a war, the announcement of the victor. Sometimes it was the declaration of Julius Caesar or 
Tiberius. It was the declaration of a Roman emperor. Uh, and there would be messengers who would go to the Agora or to the city center, uh, to a public place, and announce something. Uh, in the Jewish world, then, it gets connected to uh, synagogues and also, again, to public spaces where something would be announced. And, you know, this probably, <laughs> this probably needs a little bit of uh, understanding and special sympathy on the part of many of us today, most of us, should I say all of us, who would happen to be listening to this, who have computers, who can get up and get any news. I was telling Chris uh, the other night, we were watching the news. We turned it to WGN News. And I yeah. said, you know, when the news comes on at five o'clock or six o'clock, we've already heard it all. Because there's no one, you know, the announcements would be on your banners, on your CNN or whatever news you want. Yeah, there's nothing new to report. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's constant news and constant newness. Whereas in the first century, People would be held in suspense for days and weeks. Just imagine Paul writing a letter to Philemon, Paul in prison. I think Paul's in prison in Ephesus, not in Rome. Just imagine him being in prison in Ephesus, and he sends a letter through Onesimus and others, like Epaphras, although he's, he's in prison with Paul, they, they, uh, and they go to Colossae and deliver this message. There's no way Paul's going to get a text message back from Onesimus during the service or during the reading of it saying, hey, Philemon's responding really well. You ought to be here. Yeah. There's none of that kind of thing going on. Uh -huh. Paul has to wait probably weeks, maybe a month, maybe two months to hear news about what's going on. So, so when someone came in with news, it had great significance because most of the time, people had been awaiting on hearing this news. Man, you know, that's a, a really interesting point I've, I've never thought about before. And there was so much more suspense. And I needed, I need news to be able to, you know, change something in my life. It, it may be, you know, religious and, you know, the good news, the gospel as we understand it. Or it may just be, you know, I, I want to know how my brother's doing in a, another town or something. Yeah, but yeah. there's there's suspense in that because, um, there's not the immediate communication or contact or, or conversation that we are so accustomed to. Just think of Paul and Titus and First and Second Corinthians. I mean, Paul is waiting news from Titus about how the Corinthian church is responding to his harsh uh, message at times. And he's just absolutely thrilled and relieved and his heart is exploding with joy when he hears the news from Titus. That, that's a pretty good um, indicator of what it was like to be a communicator, a messenger of news, and to be a receiver of that news in the first century. Hmm. Let's go ahead and, and move to what the the message was that was being communicated and preached. And this is something you talk about in your King Jesus Gospel book. And uh, in that, you talk about what the message was that Jesus and the early church preached. Well, what can you tell us about that message that we need to understand from the Bible? You know, the message, uh, let's just let's start at the beginning. John the Baptist preaches that the kingdom of God has drawn near. This is Matthew 3, 2. 
Matthew 4.17 then says that Jesus also declared that the kingdom of God has drawn near. So for Jesus and John, the, the message that was being declared, now notice how that language is. The kingdom of God has drawn near or has arrived. Uh, the time has been fulfilled. Repent and believe in the gospel. That's an announcement. That's what it meant to preach in the first century. In some ways, it's not as formal as our preaching. And in other ways, it is reduced to very simple messages where something deserved to be announced. So the message of John and the message of Jesus is that the time has been fulfilled, which is a statement about the story of Israel. It has, it has run its course. And, the, and that story, which is in search of a concluding chapter, that chapter is going to go on for a long time, but that story that is in search of a resolution uh, has found its resolution in the declaration that the kingdom of God has drawn near. This is the message of John and Jesus. So it is a declaration that the kingdom of God is drawn near. Now, when you get to the early Christian preaching, and what I mean by that is the message of Peter and Paul in the book of Acts. Of course, it's expanded by others, other apostles and writers in the New Testament. When you get to the apostles' gospeling work, when you get to the apostles making their announcements, the word kingdom sort of slides into the king. So it is not simply that the kingdom has drawn near, but that the kingdom is drawn near and its king is here. So it, it slides from sort of a social set of conditions into a personal uh, message into the reality of a person. So out of the fog, they're, they're in a fog looking for um, a landmark. They're looking for a building. They're looking for a street corner. They're looking for a place to go to. This is the fog of Old Testament anticipation. And when they get to the crossroad, they realize that it's not a crossroad, it's a person. That the resolution to the problem of Israel's story is Jesus himself. So Jesus announces himself as the, as the agent of the kingdom of God, and it is the apostles who then develop this, that they are preaching a message about Jesus. So uh, I, I would like to focus, I, I would like to concentrate, I'd like to have our energies reshaped to where what we have to offer to the world is a declaration about Jesus, that Jesus Christ is Lord, he's the king, he, has, he was killed in an unjust way, but God raised him from the dead, and we are telling this story about Jesus. Well, that's, that's what we're proclaiming. Yeah, we have to understand it as the resolution of the story of Israel and you know, proclaiming you know, Jesus as that. And, and for us to be Israel means for us to be in Jesus. And um, if we're going to preach like the, you know, the early church and uh, you know, let the kingdom take root in our lives and our churches, you know, we need to be centering our message 
around that, not just a, a particular aspect or element of it, but the whole course of, um, you know, of the story and, and fitting all the pieces together. Yeah. And, and, um, I think that we, we are, um, we are seduced by offering other things. We, we, Mm -hmm. we talk about happiness Mm -hmm. and all these things are good. We talk about forgiveness and reconciliation and we talk about nice societies and we talk about nice buildings and we gather because the music is just amazing and the vocalists are amazing. I don't know if they call them soloists or performers. I don't know what they mm-hmm. call them. Uh, and the, the, the lyrics are amazing and we have overheads that project them and we don't even have to have hymn books anymore. And before long, we gather because of all these things, or these things, it's not just the reason we gather, these things crowd out the central message that we are gathered together to announce that Jesus has been raised from the dead, that the one who died is resurrected, and that as the ruling Lord, we have the opportunity to live under him and enter into kingdom realities in the world now. So these are these are the things we need to focus on declaring. Yeah, we can never let that get yeah. crowded out in our in our churches. Otherwise, we you know lose what it's all about. I, I'm interested, you know, to kind of think about and talk about how the suspense plays a role. I, I loved how you brought that in earlier. And I know, you know, as a pastor in a church today, my people are, are just so inundated with, with all the different messages and stories and communication on Facebook, Twitter, uh, TV, that there are so many different messages that I, I feel like it's harder than ever to, you know, create suspense, to create that, that interest that I need something else in my life, or I need something to center my whole life around. How do you think we can do that? Or the church needs to, to do that in a fresh way to present, you know, these important realities of Jesus that we've already mentioned um, in a way that that captures people in their imagination yeah, and interest. That's good. Uh, yeah, let, let's just say this, that for Christianity in the first century sense to make any sense, there has to be a backstory that it is the solution to. And when that backstory is unknown to us or largely meaning to us, meaningless to us, then we got good news and now we have to make it good news about us so that it remains good news. So let's, let me put it this way. You know, everybody lives in a story. Um, we have friends uh, who, who talk about what's happening in their life and they they occasionally, I shouldn't say this occasionally, they almost every time we're with them, when they explain what's going on in their life, a current event, they give it meaning in light of a long-term story in their life. Now, I have to admit that um, inside me, sometimes I get a little irritated as a, as a theologian because they can make it sound at times that the whole world revolves around them and mm-hmm. that God is uh, has got them in mind with everything that happens. You know, I'm not talking about something as silly as a finding a, a parking spot, but 
Uh, everybody has a story. And the only way we can make sense of anything in our life is if we put it into the storied framework. All right. Now, Israel had a different story. And I mean, I use this line quite often because it's so indicative of the problem. A reader one time wrote me and said to me, I notice in the New Testament that Jesus is often called Messiah. In fact, I think he said he's called Messiah all the time. What does Messiah have to do with the gospel? Hmm. Now, this is an amazing question that is indicative of people who believe in a gospel that has no backstory. Mm -hmm. Because when you want to know what Messiah has to do with the gospel, then you don't even know the reason for the gospel. In other words, declaring Jesus is the Messiah is the gospel. Mm -hmm. It is not simply a gospel that we can get saved, which is a way of making the message about us. Mm -hmm. It is a message that Jesus is the answer to a problem. He is the solution to a problem. He is the resolution to a story in search of a solution. And therefore, we have to create that backstory so that it leads to that that resolution. So here's the one thing that I think we need to do frequently. And that is, as teachers and leaders in churches, Sunday school, small group, whatever, we constantly need to teach New Testament passages in light of the story of the Bible and how that story is the backstory that gives fresh air to an individual passage. All right, now, you know, this is, this is one of my favorite examples. When we read the temptation story of Jesus in Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 to 11, I have heard many people say, What we should learn from this passage is that we need to know the Bible's promises so that we can quote scripture at Satan Mm -hmm. when we are tempted. Mm -hmm. I happen to think that is a really good idea, but I am certain that it has nothing to do with that passage. So what I encourage people to do is open up their Bibles and look at the cross references. We are so gifted today with all these study Bibles that have cross-references in them. And if you look at the cross-references, you realize that the three temptations of Jesus are parallels, are quotations of Israel's testing and temptation in the wilderness, as recorded in just three chapters, Deuteronomy 6 through 8. And then you realize that there's something else going on here. Jesus is not a, a... in this passage, is not a paradigm for how to endure temptation for me so that it's all about me and what I can get out of it. Jesus, instead, is reliving Israel's experience in the wilderness. Now, anyone who reads their Bible carefully, when they see that passage, those passages quoted in the three temptations of Jesus, well, know that those passages come from Deuteronomy 6 through 8. And suddenly they draw Jesus or Jesus draws them into Israel's story, coming to a resolution in Jesus that Israel failed in the wilderness and therefore didn't get to enter the land as the people, but they all died off. And even Moses didn't get to enter the land. 
Jesus, unlike Moses, is obedient, and his people, because he has been obedient, are follow the obedient one, and therefore they get to enter the land. Now, all of a sudden, we have a dramatically different interpretation of the text mm-hmm. because we know the backstory. Mm. And I would just encourage people, you know, it's it's simplistic. And and I think it's it's defeating, self-defeating, is to say, well, read the Old Testament. Well, how many people do we know who've barely made it through Genesis? Mm-hmm. They get into Exodus, and it's okay till it gets to all that stuff about the tabernacle. Yeah. And then, okay. Who knows what's going on then at that point? <laughs> then they get to Leviticus, and they think, what in uh, the world? And, you know, I don't think the first uh, the first strategy is to pick up Genesis 1-1 and start reading. There are some people who can do it that way, and that's fantastic. Rather, I think we need to take snippets. Read the New Testament. Look at our marginal references. And for a couple years, check out those marginal references on a routine basis in the Old Testament. And then, because we're beginning to pick up the story that's being completed in Jesus, we have some categories to start reading that. Now, the other, another strategy, and this is, uh, I'm particularly grateful for this, uh, and I'm in an Anglican church, but I don't, I'm not talking that this is an Anglican thing. We have a liturg- we have a lectionary that we use for the selection of texts every Sunday. And in a period of three years, everybody in the church who comes on Sundays will be exposed to the primary big passages of the whole Bible. All of Israel's story, not every passage, but you know, we're, we get the big picture. So that over a period of three years, the person who sits in the pew is exposed to the story of the Bible. Now, if you do that for, let's say, 30 years, you've done that, you've gone through the whole Bible 10 different times. Well, this is how you build a consciousness of the story of Israel. That's a second strategy. And I think the third strategy is to is to take some classes, go to Northern Seminary yeah. uh, and take some classes or, or have your pastors or your teaching people, your Sunday school classes and programs develop uh, a curriculum where they expose everybody in the church through through specific teachings to the story of the Bible so that they have bigger categories uh, that can inform their reading of the New Testament. Yeah, so for that generating suspense and, and understanding you know, the greater story and the message, uh, like you said, it's the reading back through the, the cross-references and the backstory of what's going on, um, you know, just being exposed and that's I think that's so important just to be reading yeah. even yeah. devotionally regularly yeah um, you know when you get to a, a place where you understand more of the overarching and there are so many great resources out there you know, you, know, you just you just mentioned probably the most important thing yeah uh, read your Bible yeah <laughs> read it, uh, and uh, go back and forth read some Old Testament read some New Testament pick out a, pa- a book in the Old Testament pick out first chronicles you know mm-hmm. you might want to start with first kings mm-hmm. uh, because you don't have to start out with you know chapters of names and names and names but you go through uh, you go through one of those books and then go to the new testament and go back and forth mm-hmm. always with your, your mind your eye on the book of psalms because of its prayers mm-hmm. always with a, a mind on the book of proverbs because of its wisdom mm-hmm. and you read say i'm going to read this year i'm going to read isaiah Mm-hmm. And I'm going to read the whole thing through, and I'm going to get a big picture of how Isaiah works. I believe that mastering, or at least reading carefully, one of the major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, 
Uh, and we can add Daniel to that. You read one of those major prophets and you've got a pretty good feel for how the Bible works mm-hmm. because they bring that story to bear on everything that happens. Yeah, I think one of the most important things you can do in, in reading like that is to not get discouraged if there's stuff that you don't understand and all the puzzle pieces aren't fitting together, but it's the continual obedience of that long-term exposure that throughout the course of our life and the long journey that you know we've talked about it being, it it begins to fit together the more and more exposed to it that you are, you're exposed to the story over a long period of time. And that's where the connections map. And you know, that's where you're able to unpack and teach. Um, but it's a, it's a long journey. It doesn't happen overnight, unfortunately. So to close, kind of wrap up our, our time together here, how would you say that that preaching, as it's done in the you know the Sunday morning, the proclamation of you know, the message of Jesus being the resolution of Israel's problem and the whole story, when we proclaim that from our pulpits and what gets communicated on the weekend, how does that enable the kingdom of God to take root in our churches? Well, uh, let's just say this: uh, I think that we would, uh, if we're preaching well, if we're preaching the Bible in light of the Bible, and not just a passage in complete isolation from the rest of the Bible, then we will, in preaching the New Testament, focus on Jesus as the center of the New Testament message, as the revelation of God for this world, and his people, the kingdom of God and the church. So I would say that we can help uh, the kingdom of God take root through preaching. And And Chaz, I should say this, that some people value preaching way too much, Mm. that they think that the entire focus of Sunday morning is to listen to one person preach. Um, I value teaching and preaching in the church, but it is the living of the life of the kingdom in 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 the church that is the focus of the New Testament, not hearing a sermon but embodying the message of Jesus, Christoformity, taking place as a community and individuals that matter the most. So I would say that we need to focus on the big picture. We need to tell the story of Jesus, preach from all four Gospels on a routine basis, connect what the Old Testament says and what the apostles say to what Jesus has said and done, The second thing I would say is that if we have a full kingdom view, we will always have these five themes in view when we're preaching. We will will talk about the king. Every kingdom has a king. The king in the Bible is God, who uh, has revealed himself in his kingly royal Messiah. The second thing is that this king rules, and he rules by way of redemption. That is, he saves people like in the Exodus and the exile, and he, the people return to Jerusalem. He saves them through the Red Sea. He saves them through the Jordan River, and they enter into the land in the New Testament. Jesus saves by way of the cross and resurrection of who he is. It's not just that he did something, but who he is paved the way. And he not only then do we have a king who rules, he rules by way of redemption and he rules by way of governing. And that is 
this king is the Lord, and we listen to him as the Lord. Um, I am fascinated by American politics, like most people are. I'm also wearied by American politics. I should probably say I'm wearied by American politicians. But we need to constantly keep in mind that, yes, uh, these elections matter, but what matters far more is that Jesus is going to rule no matter if it's a Republican or a Democrat on um, sitting in the White House in Washington, D.C. So if we're going to preach kingdom, we're going to preach that we're going to preach a king and we're going to preach this king ruling. And we're going to preach that this king has formed a people. In the Old Testament, it's called Israel. In the New Testament, it's called the church. Any diminishment of the significance of the church is a diminishment of what God is doing in the world. He's not just rescuing individuals. He's not saving America or Denmark or Ireland or New Zealand. Uh, He is instead redeeming people in the context of the church. And then fourth, this king who rules his people by way of redemption and governing is someone who gives his people clear instructions of how to live. In the Old Testament, the Hebrew word for instruction is Torah. And in the New Testament, we have the word nomos, law. We also have words like Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, and we have the apostles' teaching at the end of their letters. So, We have instructions on how to live as God's people as we live under this king. And then the final theme of any kind of kingdom theology that will shape our preaching, we will also have a focus on space. And in the Old Testament, this is the holy land, the land promise, and it is so important. And any reader of the Old Testament who, let's just say you are a really good Old Testament reader, When you get to the New Testament, you can start saying, hey, where's the stuff about the land? Well, a couple things. Number one is it's assumed uh, throughout all the Gospels and in many ways in the Apostles. They assume the land promise. But even more, there is the sense that this land has become mobile as the temple uh, uh, is mobile and Jesus becomes a mobile temple. He's greater than the temple. And as the Apostle Paul said, the early Christians were the temple of God. So the temple promise is no longer restricted and reduced to its physical properties in Jerusalem. It becomes a spiritual reality as well uh, throughout the world, wherever these people take up material space. So the land promise, I think, is the same way, is that wherever God's people is living under Jesus as the king, and, and taking up or occupying space in the world, I don't just mean a church building, wherever they are physically present, the holy land of Israel, the land promise of the Bible, is beginning to be extended throughout the world. Well, these five themes help us, keep us focused, keep us concentrated, keep us centered on what it means to, to, to preach the kingdom in our world and it also gives us then shape for the kingdom taking root in our local communities. That's good. That's a 
great place to end for today for understanding how do we proclaim the kingdom and allow it to take root. We need to be talking about these five things of Jesus, God being the king and him ruling as king, how he saves and redeems us in his ruling and in his governing, and that he calls us to an ethic. And that, that ethic changes how we live and how we walk. And there is also a material space that we take up as the embodied kingdom of God through the church. And so I hope that template, as well as understanding what was the message of the original church, is helpful as you think about and wrestle with in your church um, preaching and how that enables the kingdom to take root now in your church context. 